pshaw. That's not quite right. Uh, let me let me try again. Pshaw. Now that's still not it. I, I guess I'll never get it. I'm trying to say uh, a word, a really old-fashioned word, um, and many of you probably maybe never even have heard that word in your entire life. And those of you who have uh, most likely appreciate the difficulty that I'm having. I'm convinced that no one since my grandparents' generation can say that word as it's meant to be said. The word is spelled P-S-H-A-W. And in those days when that word could still be said, some people almost didn't pronounce the P while others accentuated it, but in either case, it carried the same force. It is a word that drips with disdain and contempt and derision, but it's not always meant unkindly. (laughs) I I have once or twice attempted to use that word myself without any success, but I had it discharged in my direction once a long time ago, and it almost knocked me to the ground. I was in my very early teens, and I was talking with an elderly gentleman who lived on my street halfway up the opposite hill. And none of the kids in the neighborhood liked him. They were all afraid of him, and so was I. But I found myself in a place where I was talking to him one day, kind of in passing. And I really don't remember what I was saying, what the topic was. I totally forget that. But whatever it was, it must have been comprised mostly of drivel and jabber. Maybe even more than normal, uh, finding myself talking with that man. Because suddenly he unloaded that word at me and I staggered back a couple of steps. And then he proceeded in a no-nonsense manner to tell me how foolish such talk was. It didn't reflect the real world, he said. It's past time that I grow up, and there are others out there who wouldn't be as kind as he, who would even take advantage of one who had such an absurd outlook on life. And you know, he didn't mean that unkindly. He meant it for my good, and I realized that everything he said was right on target. And from that time on, whenever our paths crossed, and it was rare enough, we would talk briefly. He was still intimidating, and I was always cautious, but I gained a kind of a genuine respect for him, and I was sorry when he died. But that one word, Shaw, was an emotional expression that dismissed, almost like a wave of a hand, the things which were foolish and idiotic and beneath the dignity of humanity. And I, for one, wish we could resurrect that word, for I don't know a more appropriate response to some of the things being championed in our culture today. Men who identify as women have a right to use the women's bathroom and locker room. Pshaw. I have no South of Sahara blood in my veins, but I still feel as though I'm really a black man or woman. Pshaw. 
or a Native American, <laughs> or the age on my birth certificate isn't how old I feel, so I want to legally change it, or I should be allowed to marry multiple people, even an animal if I want to. Shaw, shaw, and shaw. Or you don't have the right, nor does the government, to interfere with the decision between a woman and her doctor concerning the life of that baby who survived the abortion attempt, even though it's living on its own, they have a, they, they have a right to kill it. And you're just trying to take away a women's health care. Shaw and double Shaw. Look, my friends, look at what we're debating no longer are we debating whether abortion is wrong or not, nor that 97% of abortions are for convenience only and less than 3% because of rape or incest or the health of the mother. We are past the point of debating partial birth abortion. We've arrived at the place where the Congress of the United States of America is trying to pass a bill to keep alive a baby who is alive to protect it from its own mother and the doctor who might kill it, and the bill was defeated. Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Are we really seriously debating these things? Why hasn't all this nonsense dismissed as the utter claptrap that it is? How did we get here? Now, before I answer that, before I can say how we got here, can I tell you one place where I don't think we should use that word pshaw? You know, if a man were to say to me, I identify as a woman, or a woman says, I identify as a man, I won't use that word. You know, such people do not need our dismissal. They need our help. They need our pity. They have deep and serious problems which cannot be fixed by lying to them or by saying that everything is okay or by mistreating or ignoring them. And it's not popular to say that, but it's true. What is truly insane is that point three percent of the population is driving our policy. And it's the evil that politicians use people like that to forward their own agenda instead of helping them. And it is a crying shame that so many people on the other side of the aisle mostly keep quiet, trying not to draw attention to themselves because they're not willing to take the heat. Which brings me to the reason that we find our place that ourselves in this place to start with. The ancient King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived outside of Jesus Christ, offers some thoughts which can cast a light on why we are talking about the things we're talking about these days. So won't you join me, please, in your Bibles, once again in Ecclesiastes, and once again in chapter 8, or you can follow along on the screens on either side of me. So as a nation... We are at this juncture in our history directly because of those who govern this nation. Uh, there is a lack of principled and godly leadership. 
So within our government, there are those who are committed to a wicked course. There are those who call good evil and evil good and who openly advance godless gender. And there are also those, not enough of them, but they're there who stand tall and who fight for what is good and right. And then there are those who still know their right hand from their left hand. But they're fast losing the ability to discern even that. And because of the failure at the top, the whole nation is spinning away out of control. Solomon says as much in verse 11. This is what he writes. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. You see, it's the failure of governments that crimes are not decisively dealt with. And yet it's just not that one person seems to be getting away with it. It's more than that. It's that many other people are affected by it. People are hurt and seriously injured because the leaders did not do their job. There are some people who head down the path of wickedness themselves who might never have gone that way if justice were done. It's not that they're merely making a kind of a cold calculation that maybe they themselves can get ahead by indulging in a little unethical behavior. Their very hearts and souls become filled with the schemes to do wrong. The corruption goes to their very core. Let the criminal get away with it and you not only destroy him and her, you destroy others in the process. It's kind of like a screen of stone and rock and dirt clinging to the mountainside. It only takes one falling stone to bring the whole wrath down and down and down, destroying everything in its path. And that's what the failure of leadership is like. Now, perhaps you're sitting out there and you're saying to me, you want to say to me, but yeah, well, what does that have to do with those other things we were talking about? Well, don't think for a moment that this applies to just things we might call crimes. Maybe that's where it starts. But it doesn't stop there. The people's hearts become filled with schemes to do evil, not just commit crimes. The NAS puts it this way. The hearts of the people are given fully to do evil. The gates are thrown open and the hordes have rushed in. Evil is vociferous cannot regulate itself. It grows more wicked with each passing day. And good must stop it if it's the only thing which can. It must be stopped before it consumes the whole world. And evil triumphs when good does nothing. And we're in the midst of a great spiritual war. And the battles on Capitol Hill are only one aspect of the ongoing war between right and wrong. A war that sweeps up everyone in its path. Where no one may remain on the sidelines for long. Sidelines for long. So if you do not stand up for good, you will have cast your lot for the wicked and you'll share in their end. Everyone, everywhere, must choose a side. And that means you. Solomon knows that. And because he knows that, he offers a warning uh, and a promise that are found in verses 12 and 13. And we're going to look first at verse 12 
and what it says about the wicked person. Although a wicked person, uh, although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, and I'm going to stop right there. Uh, that that wicked person who commits a uh, hundred crimes is evidence of the failure of human justice in that place in that time. Proverbs puts it this way: Whoever says to the guilty, "You're innocent," will be cursed by the peoples and denounced by nations. But it will go well for those who convict the guilty, and rich blessing will become upon them. And, and then um, those uh, who are lost in their sin, God says through the prophet Amos, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. You see, God demands that people and governments act justly. And when they do, governments are working in the way they should and the guilty are convicted. And the rest of that part of verse 12, you know that part that refers to the wicked living a long time? Well, that's also evidence of something. It's evidence of God's patience as he draws all people to himself. Peter puts it this way in his second letter. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And Paul says much the same thing in, in Romans 2. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? The wicked will not get away with anything. But they may yet be forgiven. But only if they repent. Only if they turn from the evil and go to God. Verse 13 tells us what happens if the wicked do not repent. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them and their days will not lengthen with shadow. You know, the days won't lengthen indicates that there is a limit even to God's Patience. The clock is ticking. And then in the understatement that, uh, that rivals almost all understatements, Solomon says it will not go well for the wicked. <laughs> That's like saying to someone who's been sentenced to five consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole, you aren't going to get out anytime soon. It will not go well for the wicked, for the full weight of Almighty God's wrath will rest on them forever. Now, now, to those of you who are here, and you haven't yet made your choice, you need to take that into consideration. For eternity really does weigh in the balance. The second part of verse 12, which we skipped over, um, is for most of us who are here. Uh, Let's read verse 12 again. This time we're going to read all of it. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better for those who fear God and who are reverent before him. It will go better for us, for us who have trusted God, and yes, it will, much better. Revelation captures something of what's in store for those who put their faith in God's name. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling places are now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death 
or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That's what waits for those who've trusted in Christ. Now, I have to clarify something here. Um, our society doesn't understand the term in verse 12 of, in Ecclesiastes about the fear of God, so it's necessary for me to translate it. It, it, it means being in awe of God. Or it means being almost overcome by his majesty and his power and his holiness. That element of fear is similar to how you might feel if you stood next to the strongest man in the world. Or you stood next to a nuclear missile that was armed and ready. Or at the feet of a true giant whose cloud was in, head was in the clouds. But it is not just fright. It's not at all like that feeling you get when you watch a creepy movie. There's a purity in it. There's a recognition that here in God is something truly good. And that's where the NIV's reverence comes in. It's a way of helping us to understand this fear, this awe. We revere God. It's a matter of the heart. So we're caught up in a spiritual battle, and it rages around us all the time, though often we're simply oblivious to it. It bears on human governments, and yet it's more important than that. The real battle is, in large part, about us. God is at work in this dark world redeeming people. While the enemy is set on killing and stealing and destroying that's a fact of our existence. And yet we're not mere idle spectators. What we do, what you and I do, matters. Now there's one more comment that Solomon makes about this battle. He, he knows that there's going to be hardships and injustices, and he wants us to see them against the backdrop of eternity. And before we can hear what Solomon has to say to us, I, I have to remind you of something first. Uh, if you've been with us, you will know that the word which is translated in, in our Bible as meaningless would really better be translated as vaporous or a passing breeze or maybe even the most briefest of moments. And we need to remember that when we read verse 14, which we're going to read now. There is something else meaningless, something else that's vaporous, it's a passing breeze, it's not going to last long, that occurs here on this earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. It's a passing breeze. It's just for a little while. Solomon's saying that's a temporary situation and it's not going to last forever whether you go through the hard time that you feel like you don't deserve, or you see the wicked getting something that you only wish you could receive. Solomon repeats, and therefore he emphasizes how passing the hurts and injustice of this, of this world really are. For the believer, things may be hard now, but the best of all days are coming. And there is no end in sight once we get there. Everything will be just wonderful and getting better and better. We are in a spiritual war. It affects governments, but it's really about us. 
And no one's exempt. There's no neutral territory. There's no neutral parties. Everything is up for grabs. God is at work redeeming the lost. Our enemy dissembles and deceives and attempts to destroy everything which is good. And we are on one side or the other. We are part of that battle, and what we do matters. It matters to us, and it matters to those around us. Now, I've pretty much covered the text today, but I have a couple more things that I have to say before I close our time together. First, we we need to understand something. We need to understand that if our government is not all that it should be, it is at least in part our fault. (laughs) And the hour I'm referring to today is everyday people in this nation as opposed to the politicians. You know, the United States has been an experiment in a representative republic, and that means that in one sense we get the government we choose, that we vote for, or that's foisted on us because we don't vote. But our nation was also founded on Judeo-Christian principles. And in that sense, I believe it's unique in the history of the world. So... Uh, Of the everyday people I just mentioned, we Christians have the greater obligation, I believe, to vote. And to cast our vote in a way that will advance the kingdom of God. It's not about a political party. It's about a spiritual battle. So in any given election, we must vote for the one who's most likely to advance the causes that we should support, or barring that, we vote defensively by casting our lot for the person who will do the least damage. And I just don't see how we can in good conscience sit out an election. And yet only 60% of evangelicals vote. And I think that's a problem. But I am not going to say anything more about it because I want you to know, I don't want to talk about politics. That's not what this is about. It's not about politics. It's about the kingdom. And I've hit this topic here two Sundays in a row pretty hard. And it's not my choosing. I didn't get up and and say, I'm going to preach the same kind of thing again. I'm taking the text that's next in line. And I will not turn this into a political movement here, but I will not shy away from speaking about what needs to be spoken about. And then secondly, a more important question that we need to ask and answer is, are we, those who know Jesus Christ as Savior, Are we living out our faith? Are we sharing it with others? Are we praying? Are we putting ourselves in places where God can bless us so we can be a blessing to others? Are we speaking up for the truth? You see, we are the best hope this world has. Jesus said we are the salt and the light. We bring the light into the dark places of this world. Christ in us shatters the night. And the presence of the people of God preserve whatever goodness there is that's left in this world. Can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine what this world would be like without us? Without the Christian influence? I can't even begin to imagine that. But it's Christ in us. 
understand that it's him in us that makes the difference. And if this nation, the United States of America, has ever been the best hope of a good life in this world that our modern world has ever had, and I think it has been, it's only because God has blessed us. It's only because we have been historically a gospel light in the world. But if his people don't shine, Lady Liberty's life will be snuffed out. And the darkness will settle on this land. And I don't think once it does, it, the darkness will ever after go away. Such is the battle that we're in. And I'm telling you, if our nation goes the wrong way, we still are part of the kingdom of God. We must still advance his kingdom in this world at whatever cost to us. And then finally, the last thing I have to say is the most important, at least maybe to some of you here, it has been the most important thing for all of you at one time. Now I want to be clear about something. Uh, uh, Earlier I said something, which I also said last week, that I want to make sure you understand. I said everybody has a choice to make, and that's true. But the choice is not just about choosing a side. It's not just about lining up with what's good. The real choice is deeper and much more profound than that. The real choice is between continuing as the person you have always been or trusting God to make you a new creation. Now you can try all you want to turn over a new leaf and who knows, maybe you will even live a better life than you've ever lived before but you will find it painfully hard to keep it up and there will be an emptiness inside of you because you will still be dead spiritually. You will still be in your sins. Your nature will not have changed, even if you are living a better life than before. You will still be, as the Bible puts it, dead in your trespasses and sins. What is needed is a new creation. And only God can do that. Only God creates. Your sins bad things that you've done, the good things that you should have done but didn't do, they earn for you a wage. It has bought for you death, and not just physical death, but eternal death, separation from God and all that is good forever. You cannot undo one of your sin, not the least of them all. And if you are honest, you will admit there have been many, 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 many more than one. And though you may turn over a leaf, you may live a better life than you did before, your nature will have not changed. And it will be ever turning away from the good path you want to walk. You will never be able to stop sinning. You, you will fail. Sometimes you'll be caught off guard. It'll hit you when you aren't looking, but sometimes you will simply choose to do the wrong thing and don't act shocked. The truth is we've all done that, every one of us. We've all at times chosen to do the wrong thing. 
And there's only one cure for people like that. There's only one who can take away your sin. There is only one who can make you a new creation and give you new life, real life, eternal life. Only Jesus Christ can save you. And he will if you agree with him that you're a sinful person. Not the worst person in the world, no. But certainly not good enough either. If you agree with him that your sins are not excusable, that is, you admit that what you've done is wrong. And, you, and, and I don't mean by that naming everything you've ever done. But to begin with, you can't do it. There isn't enough time. But tell him what he already knows. Tell him the worst thing that you've ever done. And then admit there are other things like it. And then tell him, that you know you could do the same kind of thing again. And tell him that you want to change. Tell him you want to follow him, that you want to live for him. Thank him for dying on the cross to pay for your sins. That's why he went there, after all. He took your sins in his body on that cross. He took your punishment. And he did all of that because he loves you. Ask him to save you, to forgive you, to give you new life. It's not a formula, my friend, no. It's about a relationship between you and God. He very much wants that relationship with you. I don't know who he might be talking about or talking to right this moment, but he wants that relationship with you. It's not that you have to remember all the things that I just said. But if you agreed with it as you heard it, and then call on him. Call on him right now, right where you are. The Bible says that he is standing at the door of your heart and knocking. It's up to you to open the door and let him in. And if you do, you'll never be sorry. If you call on him, you will enter life, real life, eternal life. If Christ comes into your life in that way, then you will be on the right side <laughs> forever. You'll be one of us. You'll be light and salt with us in a world that is spinning away into the darkness. Call on the Lord and make a positive difference in your own life and in the world around you both now and forever. Go to God right now. If he's talking to you about this right now, don't, don't listen to another thing that's said. Go to him right now, right where you're sitting. Pray to him right now. And your life will change for good and forever. Would you pray with me, please?